With the recent dramatic events in Pakistan, what next for Al-Qaeda? Hi, I'm Alex Page, and welcome to the Government Department Hot Seat. Today with us to talk about the future of Al-Qaeda is Professor John Sedell, Sir Patrick Gillam, Chair in International and Comparative Politics. Hi, John. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Following the killing of Osama bin Laden by American forces, what next for Al-Qaeda? Well, uh, perhaps uh, not much. If, if we look back over the past several years, or even over the past decade since the September 11, 2001 attacks on New York and Washington, D.C., uh, in large measure what you see after 2001 uh, represents little in the way of a, a trajectory of growth, of diversification, of expanding recruitment, uh, appeal, innovation in what remain a narrow set of sort of terrorist repertoires and a relatively small and arguably declining uh, body of uh, terrorist recruits. Uh, and in recent years, analysts who study trends in Islamist terrorism have argued in favor of both uh, the emergence of what they call leaderless jihad, in which the small-scale occasional terrorist attacks, the name of Islam that you've seen in different parts of the world, have been carried out in large measure by small numbers of individuals uh, lacking in sort of large-scale organization and initiative uh, and instead perhaps enjoying some sort of inspiration from figures like Osama bin Laden. And alongside that, a decentralization of al-Qaeda's uh, effective operations so that you have groups in various parts of the world claiming affiliation with al-Qaeda. So al-Qaeda in the land of two rivers or uh, Mesopotamia in what we would call Iraq or al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Saudi Arabia and more recently uh, remnants in Yemen or in the Islamic Maghreb. But these sorts of groups, the extent to which they've been effectively directed, funded, operationally led and controlled by bin Laden, it's really rather attenuated. And to that extent, bin Laden's departure from this world uh, at the hands of American uh, Navy SEALs um, represents the the disappearance of a symbolic figure who's used a certain kind of language and occupied a certain kind of uh, place in the, the sort of social imaginary for Islamists, maybe for Muslims and non-Muslims in different ways. But in real terms, uh, this is a small, marginal, fragmented, uh, hemmed-in organization insofar as it remains an organization. Uh, Many people are anticipating some efforts at retribution, either of a nature that's organized by those who were close to bin Laden or those who would like to be associated with him. Uh, so one should not be surprised to see some sort of uh, mobilization along those lines of small-scale terrorist activities. But the fact that a few weeks have now gone by and we've seen nothing is presumably revealing of something. The, the, the response to his death has not been large-scale mobilization, unsurprisingly, given the limits of his support and popularity. But also, we haven't seen, as of yet, uh, any successful terrorist response, really, of any size, to my knowledge. So that is revealing of, of how al-Qaeda has really already proved to be a failure. 
Islamists. What does this mean for the relationship between governments and Islamist groups around the world? Well, uh, it's hard to imagine that the entire apparatus of uh, surveillance and funding and counterterrorism and all that will simply be uh, folded up and removed from various police, intelligence, security agency uh, budgets and bureaucracies. And it's hard to imagine that uh, the full spectrum of Islamist activists will, you know, entirely forego uh, violence in the name of Islam or terrorist violence in particular. But certainly it should do a couple things in terms of the global war on terrorism. It should give people uh, a chance to take stock and to remind themselves that actually there's not that much of this out there. And certainly politicians and governments may feel responsible to their citizenry in terms of anticipating, preventing, preempting, and so forth, uh, these sorts of possible attacks. But the extent of resources devoted to this cause uh, compared to other kinds of more worthy uh, sort of uh, needs in societies, that might be worth reevaluating at this juncture. The second thing, obviously, would have to do with Afghanistan. I mean, here you have... Uh, an elaborate and expensive uh, set of American, British, and broader NATO commitments in Afghanistan, whose origin lay in the September 11, 2001 attacks, as opposed to any necessary antagonism vis-a-vis -vis the Taliban. And with al-Qaeda removed from the equation, if al-Qaeda is a paper tiger, if Osama bin Laden is gone, if you can tick the box of, if not justice, then retribution and revenge, then it makes it easier politically in Washington, presumably, to pack up and leave, uh, to draw down those sorts of commitments that supposedly uh, are going to be reduced by 2014, uh, and to allow or encourage some kind of deal between the Karzai government in Kabul and uh, the Taliban. Uh, why not? Um, and, and, and just call it quits in that regard. Um, so that's, politically, it might give more space for a movement that was already proceeding in that direction, but for which there's a larger regional context in terms of Pakistan and India, uh, as well as Afghanistan. What does this mean for the relationship between governments and Islamist groups around the world? Well, what you can see in the Pakistan case most glaringly, uh, but which is true in perhaps less obvious ways elsewhere, say Indonesia or Yemen or perhaps parts of, parts of West Africa, uh, North Africa, um, is that a variety of governments have, through their intelligence agencies and security agencies, played a much more complicated uh, game uh, in terms of their relationships with not just Islamist movements, but clandestine armed Islamist groups in ways that uh, involved covert sponsorship, protection, deployment, um, if not the, the creation of, of sort of false threats and the manipulation of that to extract uh, resources and gain leverage vis-a-vis -vis the United States. In the case of Indonesia, 
those sorts of relationships and that sort of game, which was very evident in 2001, 2002, uh, that has already largely been um, played out and eliminated from the repertoire of of games played by security agencies and the government in Indonesia. In Yemen, it remains a card in the hands of the the, the Saleh government that has yet to, to fall, amazingly. Uh, and in the case of Pakistan, I think it's something that will continue indefinitely if we look at what we're likely to see in weeks ahead in terms of evidence of direct Pakistani sponsorship and involvement uh, in the Mumbai attacks uh, of, I believe it was 2008, um, that, uh, that we'll see more of in a, an upcoming trial in weeks ahead. I think uh, it's clear that for Pakistan, deploying these sort of subcontracted armed Islamist groups is part of its long-term uh, sense of embattlement vis-a-vis India. It's part of a foreign policy in which it you know, perceives itself to be in a weakened position vis-a-vis India. Uh, it's part of Pakistan's domestic politics in which the military and also civilian governments find Islamist groups, armed and non-armed, useful vis-a-vis autonomous, uh, sort of pro-autonomy and secessionist movements uh, and it's also part of the Pakistani relationship with the United States that has come in the wake of the end of the Cold War. It's easy to forget that in South Asia, a sort of tectonic shift did unfold with the end of the Cold War in which the United States, after years of allying with Pakistan and against India, leapt at the opportunity from the 1990s forward to seal a new kind of alliance with India that had been prevented by uh, the alliance politics of the Cold War era. And in terms of India as a market, in terms of India as a wedge against China, it's a very attractive relationship that the United States has actively, assiduously cultivated. And from the Pakistani perspective, their main game, their, their real asset, their leverage, lies in this Islamist card. And that's how they can prove themselves to be useful. It's not just a bunch of crazies or a bunch of rogue elements in military intelligence. Um, It is structurally part of a larger logic in which Islam is a weapon of the weak, uh, of weak states in in various uh, regional contexts. You can see it also uh, in terms of the unfulfilled promise of Iranian influence in the Middle East, in which... Iran compensates for the way in which it is hemmed in by American, Saudi, Israeli, and other policies by funding various groups uh, like Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas, and otherwise. Uh, the sort of that kind of role for Islam in international relations that has to do with states and their instrumentalization of Islamist politics will live on even as the idea of transnational Islamist mobilization in the name of something grand like global jihad is clearly fading from view. And we can sort of kiss that goodbye with the death of Osama bin Laden. Well, thank you very much, Professor John Sedell. Um, You're now off the hot seat. And thank you for joining us. And stay tuned for the next edition of the hot seat.